Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Finch and as usual I'm here with the Professor Ross Tucker and it has been a week of sporting highlights over the last couple of weeks. The US Open tennis has just finished, the Volta de España has just finished, we've just had the World uh, Championships, the World Cup in uh, Sevens Rugby here in Cape Town. So it's been quite a busy time uh, around the sporting fields and nothing short of uh, magnificent if you're a sporting watch on television because uh, there's never a dull moment. But uh, today we're going to wrap up some of the highlights over the last couple of weeks and uh, talk a little bit about some of the observations that we have, particularly over these highlighted events. And um, a lot's been said about uh, the performances, particularly of uh, the young man who won the US Open. And we're going to talk a little bit about him again today. But let's uh, kick off, as we usually do, with our Caught My Eye segment, which uh, Professor Tucker has uh, always got an interesting one uh, that he's lined up. So this week, talking a little bit about SEAL training and some dodgy drug accusations in the world of SEALs training. Not not sport, but related. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's not probably all that surprising that if you throw a bunch of people into an environment where physical performance matters and where they have to suffer in order to qualify and where it's competitive, you are going to create the perfect recipe for something to go wrong. And what happened was, I think it was last week, a couple of people actually messaged me about an article that had been written in the New York Times. It's not paywalled, so I will include the link in the show notes. And it's called Death in Navy SEAL Training Exposes a Culture of Brutality, Cheating and Drugs. And it tells a story about mostly one recruit called Kyle Mullen, who managed on his second attempt to finish what they call Hell Week. You've probably heard of that. Yep. Um, Watched enough movies. Yes. it's It's been... also glorified a little bit by movies, you know, strongest survive, make it through the end of Hell Week, and now you're an ultimate sort of warrior. And yes. of course, they do it because and they Demi have to. Demi murdered it once. In GI. <laughs> GI <it>? Jane. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't watch that one. Um, so this was a 24-year-old, Carl Mullen. He was a good athlete. He was a football player, and he'd, he'd come from the Yale uh, University High School and, and the uh, captain of the football team. And he makes it to Hell Week and staggers out finishes having been coughing up blood for days before the time now that's we'll get into a little bit about that in a moment gets the pat in the back congratulations they say go have a pizza he goes back and that's read to he made it he struggled out of the cold ocean at the end of hell week seal leaders shook his hand gave him a pizza and told him to get some rest then he went back to his barracks and lay down on the floor a few hours later his heart stopped beating and he died and at the time that this article was written, it talks about how they haven't established cause of death and they therefore can't speculate. But later on, they say the official cause was bacterial pneumonia. But Seaman Mullins' family say the true cause was the course itself, in which instructors routinely drove candidates to dangerous states of exhaustion and injury. And medical staff grew so accustomed to seeing the suffering that they failed to hospitalize him or even monitor him once Hell Week was over. Then it talks about how those same old questions, because this this happens to more than just this guy, sadly, were soon complicated by something new. When they gathered his belongings, they discovered syringes and performance-enhancing drugs in his car. The captain in charge immediately ordered an investigation, and soon about 40 candidates had either tested positive or admitted using steroids and other drugs in violation of Navy regulations. The Navy has not tied the sailors' drugs to death. It was ruled officially, as I mentioned, pneumonia. Mm. And they're expected to release a report in the fall. So I guess that would be imminent in the next month or so. But yeah, that's the springboard for now discussing this culture. And one thing that just shows you how conflicted it is, is the following. They're they're quite two, two separate points in the article. 
First, it talks about the, the, the top men in the seals are deeply unnerved, not just because drugs may have contributed to the death of a sailor, but also because they see their spread and the lack of discipline and order it implies as a threat to the organization that could grow in unpredictable and ugly ways. So there's almost an ethical um, fear among those in charge that drug use portrays a lack of discipline and ethics. And they quote one leader saying, what am I going to do with guys like that in a place like Afghanistan, a guy who can do 100 pull-ups but can't make an ethical decision? Okay, so mm -hmm. that's one point of view. Park that because later on in the same article, they talk about something that is completely contradictory to that. And this just kind of betrays the, the problem. And I just want to scan across to find this for you. Um, here it says, the SEALs want operators who can find unconventional ways to gain an advantage against the enemy, he said in an interview. Here they're talking to a former SEAL who published a book on this on the force. Quoting him, you want guys who can solve problems in war, guys who know how to play dirty because war is a dirty game. An often heard unofficial adage in the SEALs holds that if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Mm -hmm. We've heard that on this podcast in relation to sport. But it's just interesting to me, like you've got on one hand these guys saying we want discipline, we want guys who can do 100 pull-ups and make ethical decisions, but if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Well, which is it? That seems to be a, a culture without, it's a schizophrenic Split personality culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they don't, they don't have a handle on this because either, either you're allowing it and accepting the consequences or you're not, but then you're not encouraging ain't cheating, you ain't trying mindsets either. So they have a problem, it would seem, and I don't know what the solution to that is because in response to some of the tweets on this, people were saying, well, this is life or death. This is war. This isn't yeah. sport. Of course you're going to do it. Now, Amphetamines, which were one of the first drugs used in sport, were also initially used in war because it was used to keep pilots awake during World War II. Yep. So then, okay, then it's life or death. It's a matter of winning or losing a war, potentially, and life. Yeah. Now, is that, is, is that to say that the same thing should be true in the SEALs? in Because you could make an argument on the field of battle that if you need performance-enhancing drugs, then it's fine. Who, who cares? I mean, yeah, you're doing what it takes death, to yeah. win, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in sport, we want to create what some would call a veneer of fairness, but let's mm. call it fairness. Mm. So then you make them illegal. And I don't think the SEALs understand yet what they want because they either have to institute a testing program very comprehensively and clamp down on it, but then they have to change their culture because at the moment they're, they're trying to have the culture without the factors mm. that drive that culture or the things that that culture drives that one feeds the other, I guess. I wonder if they've had a sort of a, a, a systematic testing program for drugs up up until now. I mean, is, is this the first time it's suddenly become an issue or have they been testing before? It sounds like this is the first time they've kind of gone, hang on a minute, there's a problem here. It sounds as though, yeah, yeah. The, the death of a recruit was the trigger to search the positions, mm -hmm. which then revealed the drugs, which then revealed more drugs. And in the article, it says they were first noticed as early as 2009. Guarantee you it's older than that. Yeah. I mean, why would it be, why, why would it have taken that long, 30 years after it found its way into sport to find it's more? It, of course it's been there. So, and, and you think, the thing is you can't, in, even a systematic testing thing won't fix it. Because if that culture is true, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying and do whatever's necessary by any means necessary, you're not going to solve it by testing. No. It's, I mean, it's the same as sport. You're not solving sports problems Things by testing. If you, if, if you extrapolate it out into, from a training regime into a battlefield, if you've got a whole bunch of guys who apparently are doping during the training phase and some guys that aren't, you're not necessarily weeding out the weakest by the time you mm. get to the battlefield, which yeah. I find interesting. So yeah. if, if some of the guys that are there are not doping and they and they don't they just don't make it, they might get. They might be better suited to the battlefield than somebody who has done the doping to get yes. into the battlefield. So yeah, so that's actually a real dilemma for yeah. them. Is yeah. what is the point of training? Is to find the guy best suited for battle. Yeah, and this might confound that. Yeah. So for that reason alone, they would probably want to try get a handle on this. But mm. they have the only way I can see they get a handle on this is to change the culture mm. in training. But mm. how do you change the culture in training when you know that you're preparing for the thing in battle? <laughs> where you actually then are going to come and say, actually, you know what? I know we said to you, don't use X, Y, and Z, but now we're going to give it to you because now we need you to be on it. Well, mm. in within a generation, it's going to find its way into the training as well because mm. mm. it's a competitive space that almost glorifies suffering. Mm. So if I can out-suffer you and outperform you, I get to 
to go and you don't. I get chosen and you don't. I mean, mm. it's not that dissimilar to sport. Nine spots, people. eight spots on the start line in a team in the yeah. Tour de France or three Olympic spots per country in most sports, rowing, try, whatever it is. Of course, you're going to do what you have to do to get there. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's a proper dilemma for them. It's interesting because we were, um, for those of you that follow our podcast, obviously you will have listened to the podcast we did with the Royal Marine, um, who we chatted to yeah. five or six podcasts mm. back. And uh, just the details of what they go through during that training is, I mean, it's profound and um, it is tough. And it's certainly the kind of environment that begs for people to abuse it because they can potentially get away with it. Yeah. And also it makes things a lot easier to get through that without the without um, having to just rely on your normal physical ability. Yeah, and then think of painkillers as well. Like these are obviously yeah. performance enhancing. We spoke a couple of weeks back about Nairo Quintana and his tramadol positive in cycling. Yep. Cycling being the only one that treats it as a <laughs> policy violation, not a doping offense, but still it's further than other sport has gone. In the, in, the, in the military, it's going to be commonplace, almost guaranteed. Just like, by the way, it's commonplace in, in football and American football and rugby and, dare I say, tennis and all sports. Whereas here, I think it's a necessity. That's mm. the problem, you know. And then think also about the consequences later in life. You've got all these guys who are getting by thanks to drugs, creating dependencies in them. I mean, how many people are addicted to some form of drug because of their their military service, I would imagine it's mm. significantly higher than the average yeah. base population. So, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a cultural thing. And I, they quote a couple of guys in the piece working for anti-doping in sport, the notion being that there's some overlap. But again, I, I mean, I can't see testing fixing that when mm. the culture has created it. You've got, mm. to, you've got to treat it at source. To some extent, there are some similarities. But what we call about the cycle of dope, the sort of cycle of doping in cycling, mm. because there is this argument that there is this culture that has been around since time immemorial in terms of cycling, because they were doping and doing naughty things back in the twenties, mm. and that's been become part of that culture. So to mm. some extent, it's the same scenario. Yeah, and then you get yeah. quotes like Anquetil. I think you cannot do the tour on bread and water. Mm. No doubt, the mindset among these recruits is you can't get through Hell Week on nothing but motivation yeah. and, and inspiration. You know, and short hair. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's no doubt that these and they, they'll talk. Among themselves, they quote that in this piece. By the way, they talk about how the the recruits know who's doping and who's not, and they say we can tell, and we know the guys who are using these drugs are outperforming the clean ones. Mm. And then you get remember that classic concept. I think it was um, Basson's was the case they used. They call it passive doping, where he's remember he said the only clean guy in the peloton, Christoph Basson's, but because he was clean and he was even if it's five percent disadvantage compared to the dopers still trying to hang on, way, way, way exceeding his physiological capacity and hurting himself as a consequence. Mm. I mean, now put a guy through hell week the same way. Keep up with the guy next to you. You're now getting pulmonary edema. That's the condition they get. It's called SIPE, swimming-induced pulmonary edema from the mm. cold water immersion. And you just have to hang in there and hang in there and hang in there to the point that you can harm yourself even kill yourself. Well, I was going to say, would the argument be that because he's been potentially using performance-enhancing drugs, they wouldn't have picked up the fact that he was actually quite sick mm. and that he'd pushed through, whereas if he hadn't had those performance-enhancing drugs, he might well have collapsed and had a problem earlier on where they would have been, he might have even saved his life. Possibly, yeah. So mm. the ceiling is raised. Um, sure. You go through the ceiling, but you keep going. Mm. You you get to the point where you lie down now at your barracks and you die. Um mm. Again, I, it's such an extreme environment of testing the physical limits of people. Maybe even sport doesn't necessarily do this because mm. on a bicycle, when you get to that ceiling, you just slow down by 5%. You drop off by 30, 40 watts. You get to the finish line at the limits of your physiological capacity, but you haven't exceeded them. Mm. Whereas it seems to me that in the SEALs, it's more binary than that. There's a, there's a tragic quote where they talk about his conversation with his mom, who's a nurse, and she's saying, go and find medical attention. He says, you can't do that. The moment you seek medical help, you're out. Mm. So it's very binary. Mm. You're either surviving it and will pass, or you stop and you are completely out. Sport at least separates you along a spectrum, mm. not into a digital world of on or off, yeah. yes or no, pass or fail. You know. Mm. So it's, I mean, it's it's a good article to read. 
Mm. Not all that surprising if you've understood and followed the culture of sports. And this is probably even worse Mm. because of the way they've set it up to glorify last man standing. Well, then what do I need to do to be last man standing is the question this recruit is asking himself. And if doping is an option, well, of course he's going to do it. Waiting for a sport to become like that where last man standing is the winner. (laughs) Well... (laughs) There are many sports like that, actually. I do say, in the absence of anti-doping, most sport would look like that. You know, I mean, I think, I think when you look at the before anti-doping was even a thing, ineffective thing maybe, but in the 1980s, I dare say, you doped. If you didn't dope, you didn't have a chance. Mm. And the more you doped, the more chance you'd have. It was your success was proportional to how much risk you were Mm. willing to take. Mm. And so that's what I think sport would look like now. So you could argue that anti-doping doesn't exist to eradicate doping. It exists to suppress doping. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting because I look at the concept of – I've always had this idea of creating an an event or a sports event where the the person that finishes is therefore the winner. In other words, it's not about who's first, second, or third. It's literally last man standing. And the only race or event that I can think of that does that effectively is the Barkley Marathons, which is an event that's held in the States – where they run mm. an incredibly tough course over three laps. And most of the time, nobody finishes officially, and sometimes they get one or two finishing. So it's mm. one of those rare events where just finishing probably makes you in the top three. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> but that's what happens at, at Marine and and training, probably pretty much that's the idea. By design. By design, yeah. I mean, is that, that's cliched saying, saying it's not a flaw, it's a feature. Yes, absolutely. The feature yeah. of this kind of training is to literally drive you to the point of not death but near death <laughs> yeah. the point in which you, you fail not volitionally well and it is always volitional i suppose mm. so yeah I, it's um yeah striking not surprising mm. Mm. but a good read nevertheless mm. to to dive into yeah. for those of you that uh, want to look back on our podcast uh, with our royal marine uh, richie pointer that uh, was episode 13 which is in the middle of july beginning beginning of july so if you want to look back on that very interesting podcast a little bit off the sports track but um, something that we were very interested to talk to him about mm. so have a look yeah. have a look at that yeah and then there was another there was another caught my eye which was submitted by billy um he's actually billy Ehrenberg, who's submitted a couple actually this was an interesting one which was published in Athletics Weekly. And as you know, we're now coming up to the London Marathon. And in mm-hmm. fact, the marathon season. So there'll be a lot of endurance running to look at over the next six weeks, I guess. And this is an article talking about Elish McColgan. You might recall won the Commonwealth gold over 10,000. Mm-hmm. And a very gangly looking, mm. runs a bit like her mom, Liz. Yeah, Liz wasn't nearly as tall as Elish. No. She's was but a, a similar th- running style, funnily enough. I don't remember watching Liz run. It was before, didn't look particularly good as a runner, time. but it was effective. So Elish McColgan won that 10,000 and she had a good year. I mean, she she won a 10,000 in, in Hengelo, which doubled up as the Ethiopian trials. And she was... Very quick there. Maybe a bit disappointing, actually, to not do even better at Worlds. But nevertheless, she was then due to debut in London. She says she's postponed that after experiencing low blood sugar levels during long training runs after taking energy drinks or gels. So normally you'd see an article like this and say, well, she's not taking her energy and her gels in. She's saying here that she is taking those drinks and gels in and then developing hypoglycemia. So she first felt the problem in 2017, shook a gel before winning 3,000 meter bronze. So, okay, that's a little sugar spike before an eight and a half minute effort. Mm. She felt fine during the race, but afterwards was dizzy, lightheaded, and all over the place. The condition, which is called rebound hypoglycemia, went undiagnosed at the time, I guess because she wasn't running an event that really needs energy in the race. But now that she's trying to develop the marathon training, she has found it has come back or is still there rather so she decides to withdraw until she can solve that problem in 2023 when when it's back in in april i suppose yeah so it's an interesting one um what, ne- i mean i've never heard of that so it is obviously a physiological condition that she has where she either can't absorb carbohydrates i guarantee you've experienced it even if you haven't heard of it because what would mm. happen is we would go cycling and stop off at coffee shop number one <laughs> and have a have a croissant or a banana bread or whatever it is, plus a coffee with a sugar in it. And then you get back on the bike and within 15, 20 minutes, you feel lightheaded. Yes, that's true. And so what's happened there is that you've consumed sugar at rest. Admittedly, it's off the bike rest, but still it's at rest. 
And then your body says, well, I'm going to store this. It doesn't want that sugar to be like circulating around in your blood. It wants to put it where it's going to be stored for future, which is to say in your liver and in your muscles. And so the hormonal situation in your body changes a little bit and you start to actually take that blood glucose out of the blood and into those compartments, yeah? Yeah. The problem then is that when you then start exercising again, it's now gone the wrong way <laughs> as, for exercise, slow burner. Yeah. As, as opposed to being available for your brain. And so the moment that then happens, you get low blood sugar as a consequence of eating, which is paradoxical. Yes. That's why it's called the rebound hyperglycemia. How do you solve it? Now, yeah. So what happens, what happens in athletes is, because normally when we're at rest, like say now, for instance, and we were to have a coffee and a croissant here, our body would release insulin, which is the hormone that's then responsible for the disposal of that glucose into our tissues, into our compartments, the liver and the muscle. Mm -hmm. During exercise, insulin is off. But athletes, you see, are so efficient at getting glucose out of the blood into the muscle and into the tissues where so it's words, needed. In other words, the glucose is going straight into the cells during exercise. It doesn't need insulin to get into the cells. Yes, yeah, so yeah. fa- and that's why exercise is beneficial for people who have diabetes is because you bypass the normal. So, so glucose, remember, glucose can't just go through the wall. Mm. Okay, it's not a wall, it's a membrane, but I'm using an analogy. It needs to use the door. Okay, so there's a door in the wall and glucose needs to get through that. One of those doors is controlled by insulin and one of those doors, a separate door, is controlled by exercise-related, let's call them signaling molecules or mediators. Hmm. So that's why people who lack insulin can dispose glucose during exercise separately. There's an insulin-independent pathway. So what's probably happening for people like McCargan and others is that their uptake of glucose is so rapid, independent of insulin or maybe with insulin, that they get hypoglycemic as a consequence of consuming fuel at the time of training. So that does happen. I mean, I've had it as well. You know, you stop for a Coke. And if you don't, if you, if you don't get going pretty soon after drinking that Coke, your blood sugar falls and then you yeah. find yourself actually in trouble because of the Coke. <laughs> so it's, it's about timing, right? <laughs> yeah, so she's got, to, she's got to work with a nutritionist potentially to change the type of carbohydrate that she takes, potentially the concentration. Maybe a lower concentration leaves the stomach in smaller amounts, causes less of a glucose spike followed by the rebound low. She'll have to experiment with different kinds of carbohydrates to try and get that around this particular problem. Hmm, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. She's a fascinating to athlete to watch because she has such a unique style and you see her competing in these uh, relatively long events on the track and she's very different to lots of the East Africans that she's competing against with this long loping stride and uh, often leads the bunch. So a really talented runner. It'd be fascinating to see her run the marathon. Mm, mm, it will yeah. be. And... So then the other little trick, and I mentioned this to you on, I think our last or previous before that podcast is if you find yourself a little bit lightheaded when you're exercising, a little high intensity spurt of 10 to 15 seconds sometimes corrects that because that little high intensity spurt kicks out adrenaline Mm. and adrenaline then mobilizes because you see it's, it's constantly a balance between storage and release, storage and release. What adrenaline does is it is it opens the door in the other direction, <laughs> and so now that glucose comes back into the blood from the liver, and then that can correct it. So oh. oftentimes, if you're feeling a little bit sluggish because of sugar, counterintuitively, the best thing is a short hard burst, mm. fires up that release side of the mm. equation, if you wish, and then corrects it. So yeah, she'll have to she'll have to try smaller doses more often, try and keep it more regular. Mm. One dose followed by another to try and anticipate the rebound, keep it more level and so on. Anyway, it's an interesting problem. And to even have to ways solve. of slowing down, I mean, not just for her, but I, 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 I would, is it not also a suggestion to say that if you can slow down the rate at which you absorb sugar? So, for instance, taking some protein with that carb mm. would slow it down. Um, yeah, that could help. I know some guys who, when they're going out riding, they'll have a, a bag of bacon with their croissant mm. because the ba- bacon actually slows down the rate of absorption, it slows down the GI. Yeah, so she's going to have to figure that out. It'll be an interesting trial and error period for her to Mm. see exactly what works and so on. Difficult, though, because then you're at race intensity, which for them, remember, is going to be just outside three minutes a K, 315, 320. You'd have to recreate this at those intensities because intensity drives fuel use, Mm. and that's Mm. more than distance. So she'll have to put herself often into situations where she's been going for two hours or more at intensity and then see what happens because... You know, the 
the problem is going to develop in the last seven to 10K of the race from 32 onwards. So you, how do you recreate? It's going to be a difficult one to solve. It's fascinating to watch because if you follow her career and we see her competing in London, we know to some extent the challenges that she will mm. be facing. So it'd be interesting to see how she does. Yeah, you know? and she's yeah. she's an accomplished. I think she's run a couple of half marathons. Mm. So she uh, so she knows how to get to that point. Mm. But then as anyone tells you, you know, the mm. half the race is the last 10Ks. Mm. Starts at 32. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so interesting one. So that was, Billy sent that one through. I'd also received it on um, Twitter from another follower, but the, Billy was on Patreon. So thanks again to all the patrons. You can hop onto patreon.com, look for the Science of Sport podcast, make some pledges, leave some comments, observations, and we'll do our best to discuss them on the show. Yeah. So let's move on to some of the sort of newsworthy subjects that we've had um, in the world of sport over the last couple of weeks. And one, Carlos Alcaraz, who, to be honest with you, I had not heard too much about before the US Open, goes on and wins the US Open, 19 years of age. Interesting stat, he was that he'd, he'd spent, spent more time on court than any player at any Grand Slam tournament on record, 23 hours and 40 minutes by the end. So he'd played, I think, three or four, five setters. Wow. An amazing he, record, and he, then still yeah. managed to go on and win in four sets. He had nineteen sets in his last four games. He went yeah. five, 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 four. I mean, but it's and, the record at a Grand Slam. I mean, even the French Open, where I think five setters and long games were probably m- more likely. Yeah, he, was, this was at the U.S. Open. I mean, his game against Sinner was the latest finish ever. They finished it after two in the morning. <laughs> I mean, when you think about that, and you think about the the shower afterwards, I don't know if they have doping controls. Probably not. But the media media commitments, having to eat something and then get to bed, he'd be going to bed at breakfast. Yeah, and then okay, luckily they have two days between these games, so he could have a a, a proper day off the day before the what would have then been his semi-final. But then, yeah, then he did this, and not a dissimilar performance in the semis. It was four and a half hours, I think, against Tiafo. So, mm. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Because, like, you know, last year he beat Tsitsipas in the US Open, mm. and uh, that was a five-setter. And then he had to withdraw for the next game because he was so knackered by it. And so now he's done three in a row and then the final. It really is quite something. It's, it's actually It's actually like startlingly impressive what's interesting about him is that i don't know whether this is a sort of a tennis term but he he strikes me as somebody who's a who's a retriever mm. <laughs> his ability to retrieve almost impossible shots and get them back it seems to be a sort of a mark of his game i mean so he he's, he literally outlasts people that's, yeah, that's his and sort of tactic and so there's a there, there must be a question mark about durability yes because i can't see how you can stay healthy playing that the the number of times he must be accelerating and then well, stopping he's 19. <laughs> and then yeah and so what's he going to look yeah, like at 24 24 yeah exactly um, I mean, and again, we, we spoke about tennis actually last week, and then I said Robbie Koenig might listen to it. I, he did because I sent him a message saying, hey, I'd be keen to know your thoughts. Mm. And he's very kindly said that he'd love to come on the podcast and that they have access as a commentator. Those who don't know, Robbie Koenig was one of the guys doing the US Open feed. Yeah. Um, he says they have access to all the Hawkeye stats, but they are constrained with respect to how they use it on the broadcast because the directors and the producers feel that it might be too complex for viewers, which frustrates me enormously because I think it, I think it opens Adds the sport up. Absolutely. If you could do it right, then it actually is the best way to educate a new person about the game. Yeah. But I guess they've got 30 seconds between points and one minute, whatever it is, between games and so on. Sometimes between sets, they've got mm. 10 minutes because guys go off and disappear for a long time. But but anyway, Robbie's going to come talk to us about it. But he, he gave me one stat, for instance, that says that like Djokovic runs 53 meters on a point. What does that mean? Yeah, Well, relative to others. Yeah, but yeah. I reckon Alcaraz, I mean, the guy's running from how many times he has to stop change direction sprint stop change direction sprint forward then backwards i mean it, the wear and tear must be enormous mm, mm. so it'll be interesting to see if he can survive his own game mm. play, style of play well people are liking liking him to um uh we'll talk about the spaniard um, nadal uh, nadal rafa nadal who mm. was also a teenager what a couple of decades ago now yeah. and uh, now alcaraz is ranked number one in the world 
um, which is amazing for a teenager. Um, and as mm. you say, the, the big question marks as to whether he can maintain that for an extended yeah. period. But in a way, Nadal was also a player like that, where he was a, a retriever, really. I mean, mm. he wasn't a big winner hitter. He was a retriever of the ball. Yeah, and Alcaraz is different in that respect. Mm. Um, again, I'm only basing it on the commentary that I've heard, but they're mm. saying that Alcaraz takes the ball so early, more like Federer was, mm. messes up the rhythm of the point because there's a certain pattern to tennis, as you mm. know, as a, having played it a bit yourself. And they say Alcaraz is much more aggressive and, and, you know, Nadal came on as like a clay court specialist. Alcaraz seems to me to be, if not better, at least the same on hard as, as clay. Mm. So he's clearly more aggressive and he's a more modern style attacking player. Came mm. to the I watched the final against Drew and he was serving volleying. He was coming to the net often. Mm. The moment he sensed a, a, a chip or a slice shot from Rude, he was charging in. Mm. So... Maybe that helps him keep points shorter than he might have done otherwise, and mm. he extends his career that way. Then again, maybe the intensity of coming forward so often is going to add more to it. So it's going to be. I think he lacks a lot. Of, I think we've talked about this in a couple of times. As players, the younger players in any in any sort of sport, and if it's downhill mountain biking or tennis, when you're younger, you have less fear. Mm. And for a guy like him to be able to be taking those chances. It reminds me a little bit about that because when you're younger, you can do what you won't do when you're older because of fear or what you've learned to be less successful. Where you, whereas I think you look even in cycling, Pogaccia, and mm. uh, we'll talk about Remco Evenepoel shortly. But all those young athletes are. They know they've got a few years still to go. They can afford to take chances. They can afford to uh, take risks where yeah. when you get older, you're less likely to do that. Yeah, and they're saying Sanar Alcaraz is obviously the youngest and best of a new crop, yes. which we've been waiting for for a decade. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone said, is this it? Is this it? You know, And then came and went Dimitrov and various other players. This now seems to be, mm. and okay, Djokovic wasn't there because of his vaccine views. <laughs> um, Nadal was there, but not eliminated by Tiafo. In the round of sixteen, I think it was. It's it finally feels like it's turned now. Slight changing of the guard. Yeah. Djokovic could come back and win in France, I guess. He's not going to Australia either unless he well they change their policies. <laughs> but it does feel like this is this is now the new gen, you know. Alcaraz, Sinner, Tiafo, mm. uh Casper Rude, who I th- I yeah. hoped I'd hoped would win that final. I, I quite enjoy him. Um yeah, so maybe that's it. And you know what's funny is Back in 2003-04, and it was that Federer emerged, everyone said, this is the new guy, and no mm. one will challenge this guy. And within three, four years, there were Nadal and Djokovic. Yeah. So now Alcaraz is the guy. Yeah. I wonder by 2026, who's there? Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, the so tennis looks in good shape. And then on the women's side, Swantek yeah. was, I mean, not untouchable. She looked vulnerable at times, but... Um, she seems to be there now to stay more than any other previous champion. Women's tennis still is so unpredictable. Mm. I mean, it really is. No, she's why. probably the best bet of any of those women's tennis players in the last five or six years. Yeah, I you saw can a, say she's got a good chance of being in the final at least. So I heard a crazy stat on commentary in that women's game where they said that she'd played, I think, 10 finals this year and lost 40, matches, uh, 40 games in 10 finals. Yes. So four games in 10. So that means she's winning on average 6-2, 6-2. Yeah, which is in finals unbelievably good. So, if she stays there, then she wins eight to twelve Grand Slams potentially. Um, but yeah, it's uh, men's tennis looks suddenly open and yeah. more interesting than it had done in the last couple of years. Yeah. Mm. So let's move on to a subject which I think is close to you and I, you and ours heart, uh, Ross. And uh, I've been watching the last three weeks of the Levalta España the Tour of Spain, and uh, it's always been fascinating, and I, I love watching the, the, the Grand Tours purely because there's always this continuous sense of drama. And uh, for those of you that follow it, you would have seen Remco Evenepoel eventually win um, his maiden major tour, um, having only done two. Um, the first one he did the Giro d'Italia last year and uh, didn't perform particularly well. But what's interesting about Remco Evenepoel is that he's the first Belgian, I think, in something like 60 years to win uh, a Grand Tour or something like that. I was listening to that this morning, 78 was the last one so 44 yeah, years 40, yeah. 44 years so it's been a yeah. while since we've had a Belgium uh, a Belgium win of a Grand Tour 
But there was huge amount of expectation on Remco Venepool, um, as has been for the last three years. And when we saw the emotion of him winning, um, first of all, on the Saturday when he survived the day and the attacks, realising that he just had to go to the final day and he was most likely to win. And there was a lot of emotion on the finishing line, lots of tears and all that pressure, criticism that he even said in 2019 he got from you know blowing up literally in the last week of the Giro. Um, and then this time managing to, uh, to to perform well and, and hold on to that lead. But what's interesting about Rimko Benefil, two things. First of all, he doesn't come from a cycling background as a youngster. He was a very, very good soccer player. Um, and he took to cycling in his late teenage years. And and second of all, he's potentially, and I don't want to take too much away from his performance at the Volta here, but there's been people like Dan Lloyd, who we see on GCN and uh, one of the sort of big commentators around sport talking about Evenepoel being the next great cyclist. And I'll question that a bit to put in context about what happened with him um, at the vault and suggest that he didn't have the same level of competition that we would have expected at a Tour de France, for instance. Roglic crashed. Mm. Um, some of the big champions that we've seen on Grand Tours um, weren't there. So it was a weak GC field for him to compete against. Um, and therefore, do we really look at a Venepool and say, is he the next big thing along with Tadej Pogacar? Well, you media blacks love to talk about um, <laughs> those media things there. I uh, I can see a butt coming in here. I, I, I think he's, I think there are like four or five guys now, all under 25, who are at a very similar level. And so if you put them in the Tour de France, it would make for an unbelievably good race, especially because Evenepoel's so good at the time trial. Mm. It would it would um, force the climbers to attack him before losing time. You know, they'd have to anticipate time losses. And he literally did one of the best time trials yeah. in World Tour, yeah. Grand Tour history at the Vuelta. So, almost set him up for the win. Yeah, exactly. So if he, if he rides the Tour de France, and we don't know the route, but if there are 40K to 50K of time trials in that Tour de France, then those mountain stages are lively just by virtue of the fact that he's in the race. Yeah. Um, and all he has to do is ride like Indurain used to, you know. But we have seen him. You know, remember he won the he won the last of the monuments in the spring. Liège, best on Liège. And he and he, and he dropped a like what was a nuclear attack. I mean, yeah. he, he basically <laughs> looked like he was going to break the bicycle in half with the wattage he was producing yeah. in that attack. He's a power rider. And then he did the same thing to win San Sebastian three weeks before the Vuelta. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. He didn't ride the Vuelta in an aggressive way. He just he just got on the front and rode it like a motorbike, and no one else was staying with him. And then he would drop mass in the last couple of k's. He would he was disposing of Roglic quite early on in climbs because I just think Roglic wasn't in the best condition he early. Took the, I mean, he took the red jersey, the leader's jersey, in the first week. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I th- I think he showed quite a lot there, you know, and like he has been earmarked as the guy for like two or three years. So when Lloyd says that, I think he's saying it based on three years worth of data, but with a big interruption. Remember he had a big crash in Lombardia, um, which then put him out for many months. His first race back was the Giro. Mm. And he came back with unreasonably high expectations on him because mm. no one's coming back from a long injury layoff and then winning a grand tour at the mm. age of 20. But there were expectations of him for sure. Yeah, so, but mm. unreasonable, I think, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. it's taken him a while maybe to figure it out. Mm. Even early this year in Norway, he produced one climb in that tour of Norway that was just unbelievably good and then fell away again. Mm. So right to the end, the intrigue was would he be able to hang in? Mm. But he did. He was strong in the. Third and all week. the media I read, every single mm. story I read on all the cycling media, the podcasts I listened to, literally every conversation was, can Remco hang on? Mm. <laughs> but in the end, it didn't look like he was hanging on. No. It looked like he was actually well in control. And if he'd needed to, I suspect he could have dealt with mass even more. In the end, Roglic took himself out of the race, mm. unfortunately, because that was the only thing maybe that would have made it interesting. Did you see, by the way, the comments he made about Wright, Roglic, when he said it was his fault? 
I didn't see that. No. Yeah, so Roglic, I mean, he must be disappointed again to go out of a race because of a crash. He crashed in the finishing straight. Yeah, I said 80 meters from the line. In a break. And, yeah, and he'd, what happened was he'd, he'd gone off and he was on the left side of the road and the four guys with him came right. And then he swung back across and I think he just overlapped wheels and hit Wright's handlebars. Mm. So it did look really like his fault. Um but he, anyway, through the team, they released a statement saying that, you know, it's time now that you've got to call it what it is and it's the irresponsible riding of other people. I thought it was very unfair on Fred Wright, to be honest. It just, mm. I mean, you understand the guy's disappointed, Roglic, but it's not. It's, it's racing. It was a straight line crash <laughs> yeah. that it caused, by, I think, by him Absolutely. just veering across where he shouldn't have gone, you know. Yeah. So, anyways, um, why was I saying that? Because I think when you look at the performances, and then there are a few guys now who are doing this, looking at the watts per kilogram and the vertical climbing rates and so on. Some of what Evanapool did in this Vuelta is right up there. I mean, it is as as a, as standalone performances, and that's the we, there's an asterisk next to those. We'll yeah. get to it. What Evanapool was doing now are like dominant, dominant performances, and they would not be out of place at the Tour as dominant performances. Even dis- the, even with the stacked field, the, yeah, because yeah, no one in the tour okay. was producing numbers like he was. I mean, he, he was at seven point three watts a kilo for about twelve minutes. Sure, he was at um, what at some point. Remember, these at are some estimates. point during the race. Yeah, in the finishing climb to L eight, so that was the finishing climb, and that that might have been San Sebastian actually. Sorry, mm. but I mean, he's got so there's a, there's a there's a account on Twitter called Nightchaka Cycling. I'll, I'll put the thing, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And also at Cycling Graphs, where they're producing these analyses. Now, these are imperfect analyses. We've made this statement before because we don't get the power data. This is where, for example, the power data would be really cool to mm-hmm. have because then we could say Evanapool was at the same level as Pogaccio and Vinegar in the Tour de France, but we can't. We have to mm-hmm. estimate. And estimations are always it's vulnerable. Let's explain why that is because if, if you have no power data, then you essentially you then have to guess on environmental factors like a following wind or yeah. what other factors because, would affect because what you're what you're doing when you make these calculations is you are basing it on the time of the climb so, so you take the distance of the climb the elevation you know the gradient you know the elevation mm. and you know the the distance and so you know the speed the guy's gone and you can work out what his vertical climbing rate is and when you go uphill at a high enough gradient most of your work is overcoming gravity mm. there's a small component of air resistance and there's a small component of rolling resistance but you can estimate those away and they're small enough that you get close-ish to the truth mm-hmm. not perfectly but close-ish the problem is if you have a following wind and your time is 30 seconds faster, you can't account for that unless you have some model. And they, they, they do believe they've got a model that accounts for that. Mm-hmm. But again, models are only as good as the mm-hmm. <laughs> inputs yeah. in the models, right? And with you are following a rider that's in front right. of you, so, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So he does that adjustment, this guy, MF uh, Knight Chacker, <laughs> I think it's pronounced, um, makes that adjustment, looking at who's in the lead for how long, is there a, a drafting benefit? If the speed is higher, that benefit is higher. And they're, they're accounting for all this in their model. There was a debate actually on Twitter a little while ago where someone said, publish your model. Mm. And one of the journalists said, publish your model. He said, well, why would I do that? This is IP, you know, which you can understand. But for sure, the inputs are wind direction, gradient. I think they're accounting, well, they're not, but this is an important thing to consider, is what happens before that climb. There's a big difference between a flat stage ridden at a comfortable tempo compared to, say, a tour, tour stage where there's a tax from the first K, the first hour is 55K an hour, um, there's there's big moves from the middle. It's more difficult to mm. compare one race to the next. That's the problem. Mm. But that notwithstanding, what Avonapur was doing in Spain now is at the same level as anything we saw in France in July. Okay. The The... The, sta- the build-up to the race, the pressure of the Tour de France and the, the, the attacks early on in the stage, that's different. Mm. And so potentially he's got an easier ride to the bottom of those climbs. The first 120k of a stage might be a lot easier than the first 120 in the Tour. But uh, he's, he's yeah, up there. And like, yeah. I, think, mm. I, th- I think everything you hear people involved in cycling say is like this guy could be, could be the dominant Grand Tour rider if he maintains that. He's like, again, 21 not that that makes him unusual these days. Actually, 22, actually. Yeah. 22. Yeah. yeah. So the same as everyone else, yeah. in other words. Taylor Pogaccio is 23. So yeah. yeah. And Vinegar yeah. was? 20, no, he was 22, I think. 
No, I'm just sure, look it up, yeah. actually, but yeah, I think he's early 20s. Look it up now, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it is fascinating to to look at that. And, I mean, there's been so much hype around Tadej Pogaccio after his Tour de France wins, obviously not winning this year because of Jonas Vingegaard. But um, it's just fascinating to see these youngsters coming mm. through. And, you know, every time there's a generational shift from, you know, the days bef- before and you think, oh, is, this, is another bunch of riders going to come through? There is this almost natural progression. I always find it interesting how you see these youngsters coming through and then suddenly they're in the forefront. They're suddenly mm. there are the guys participating. And when Pogaccio was winning, everybody's saying, well, here is a guy who's going to dominate cycling. Because Pogaccio, one of the favorites for the World Cycling Champs um, uh, happening currently, and he's going to be one to watch uh, at, the, at, the, at the final. Riding clearly really well on an event in Canada recently, mm. but can he compete against? Uh, I mean, if the, both of them are competing in world champs, it's going to be a fascinating competition between two people that most people in the world of cycling believe are the two best cyclists in the world at the moment. Well, not just standing yeah. vote for an art. Yeah, yeah. Who was who was the world's best cyclist a month yes. ago? Yeah, like, <laughs> that's and that's true. the thing about this is it's such a fast-moving conversation. It is, actually. It's like we're so quick to proclaim yeah. the king is dead. Long live the king. Yes. Okay, next day, new king. Thanks. Yeah. Oh wait, hang on. The one we pronounced dead a month ago is actually back because now Van der Poel's going to be there. Yes, that's and he true. actually Goodness he actually me. was racing recently some local races in Belgium and he puts his power numbers on Strava. Never been higher. Yeah. Then you know he's winning. Um, Strada Bianca and Flanders mm. with mm. numbers less than he's riding now. Yeah, it's amazing. So yeah. remember, we've written him off. Yeah, it's true, because eh? we so, haven't heard from him for a while. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. I, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think I think people are maybe a bit quick to um. I know I'm going to be doing the pronounce the future. I'm going to be watching the men's road race. It's but even that, I mean, you know, these one day races, like something happens, and and remember the Olympics, Carapaz wins it. Mm. Who picked that? I mean, there's a good guy, but no one would have thought him over the others, the Slovenians and, and so on. Well, so he was fantastic at the Volta with these three stage wins. So. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think... Um, so yeah, what you're I, saying is Remco Vinopoul is the real deal. I think there's five guys now and probably more actually when you think Ayusa at 19 was on the podium and they all say he's like the big, the big thing, next big thing. So crazy that you're talking about the next big thing one year after saying the next big thing has arrived. Yes, absolutely. That's where we are. Um, so Ayuso Carlos Rodriguez of Ineos is Spanish champion. He's 22. He was yeah. up there for many of the mountain days. In for the end, sure. fell away a little bit. But mm. but anyway, I tell you, you've got Vinegar, Pogacar. I don't know if Roglic can have one or two more years mm. if he can stay upright. He seems to have a lot of bad luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some self-inflicted, some not. But then, of course, Evanapool... Um, Okay, you're not putting Van Art and 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 uh, Van Apul in a GC mm. um, com- conversation. Yeah. But one day, but then Ayuso comes through. The biggest threat to the competitive breadth of cycling is money, because the best teams will have two of the best eight guys each, mm. and so Ayuso is on Emirates. Now, when do you see Ayuso at his best? Mm. Maybe in the Giro, never the Tour. You see, because mm. they're going to save it. Be the focus, so. so that's the pity about it: is that you you probably won't ever get six of the best guys against one another. You'll get three of them with really, really good supporters. Yeah. Um, so, and it's always yeah. the idea that you can't necessarily peak for more than one Grand Tour a year. Mm. Although some riders do attempt to do two Grand right. Tours: Giro and Tour de France, maybe Tour de France and Vuelta. But um, mm. but yeah. Although you did win a bet against me at the Vuelta, unfortunately, which I have to admit to, I suggested <laughs> that Chris Froome was showing signs of form and he would finish in the top ten. Yes, and he and didn't finish. I said anywhere. which stage, and even that was <laughs> even that was wrong. Even that was wrong. So, so yeah, I would say I would have said that Chris Froome's name caught my eye, but it didn't even get high enough to ever do that. <laughs> he just survived, from what I've read on his social media. And, it was just about survival. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I still yeah. think Chris Froome might surprise us. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope so. I'm a fan. Yeah. Anyway, I. And then the other thing out of the Vuelta that was really interesting was you spoke about Evanopoul being a late developer. Jay Vine mm. wins the Zwift Academy. Brilliant and now story. wins two stages. Could have won the, the, the polka dots, but crashed out. Mm. And I assume, I don't know enough about his history before Zwift. He's obviously been cycling. I think he had COVID though, Jay Vine, didn't he? Or did he crash? Yeah, he crashed. Oh, did he, he crash? crashed okay, out, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was obviously riding before, but not near a professional contract until Zwift came along and gave him an opportunity. It's like the like the idols of cycling now. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. That I mean, I, mm. I followed that Zwift Academy, and for those of you that uh, don't know how that worked, they'd had a global competition to then come up with, I think, eight riders who went to this academy, um, and they all sort of competed against each other. And I watched the show, which they did. There's a whole documentary about it, and Jay Vine came up as the top rider. They did everything from climbing to sprinting to tactics to all that sort of thing. 
And then uh, you're right. He he then turned into you know king of the mountains, won a couple of stages, and it shows you. And they talked about this a lot in the commentary. How in the traditional way of finding an elite cyclist, you would go through the process of you know going to Belgium and racing the crits, and suddenly this guy came through a completely different avenue. And I suggest that potentially down the road, we're going to see more and more of this kind of stuff happening. Yeah, I'm sure, and it's part of the whole data thing, right? Because yeah. like you know now. And we're relying a little bit on estimates. Like I mentioned, these guys doing their estimates on Twitter and their graphs and so on. And I think in isolation, one performance at a time can be misleading. But if you look at it collectively, mm. I think they're actually doing quite good work. They control for as much as is possible to reduce that error. The other one who does that is that Amadi um, from Finland, Paola Raeli, I think it's, I don't know how you pronounce that one. That's I've got no chance there. <laughs> but um, they do the same thing and they've gotten really good at it. I mean, highly recommended followers because I think they, they get quite close. So as long as you understand the limitations, you get quite a good idea. But now you take Vine where you're directly measuring that power output and you can say okay this guy's got serious like engine on him yeah this is a guy who can ride 6.2 for 30 minutes yeah that's not out of place in the tour de france peloton so you know that he's good already he's basically ripe at picking Mm. and you don't have to develop them in the sport anymore you can all he's got to learn is racecraft Mm. tactical and a good deal of technical skill in order to survive in the peloton but he's obviously managed to bring that up to the level required quickly enough to realize the physiological capacity that he has. The only thing I would question there, and I actually had a friend of mine ask me this question, and maybe you can hazard a guess at it, is that riding on an indoor bike um, and pushing out, you know, seven, six or six and a half watts per kilo, can you translate that directly into a road? Because obviously a static bike is not the same as riding mm. on a road. There's different muscles that you use. I know lots of people who ride very well on an indoor bike. They get on the road, they get on a normal bike on the road and they don't perform anywhere near that. Mm. Um, is, is it, I mean, is it, is it literally saying, all right, this guy can do this on a static bike, therefore he must be competitive? Or is there a chance that, they, that you might get that wrong? I, th- I think, and I mean, I don't know for sure. It's an interesting question. I think by the time you are exceptional on the static bike, the translation to the road is going to be pretty good. Mm. Because by the time you're on a static bike and you're doing what will be for these guys six to six and a half watts a kilo for 20 to 30 minutes, and if you can show that you're capable of producing that off the back of quite a large body of work before that, you know, sort of in the fourth, fifth hour, mm. then you see the performance is, a, is the symptom of the underlying physiology. Mm. So you, you're looking at that and going like, that guy's got a VO2 max above X, his efficiency must be above Y, and he clearly has the ability to hold a percentage of threshold above Z. Mm. Of, so then X, Y, Z are like, that's the three elements to performance. Mm. So even if even if he underperforms slightly on the road relative to his lab or static or indoor bike performance, you still you'd still be saying like you know the physiology hasn't lied to me. All mm. I got to do is figure out how to tap into it in the real world a little bit more. Yeah, and you can learn that. But if you see someone who's just got inferior physiology, five point six watts on a bike, you know, which reveals a VO two max of quote unquote only 72 mm. or a efficiency of only 21.4 percent instead of the 22 you think he needs at that year two then then okay he might be as good on the road as he is but he's not he's not at the front of the race yeah, like jay vine was yeah. so yeah. i think you mm. you f- you filter out the 99.5 percent and then mm. in that top 0.5 percent you're probably saying we can work mm. with that and to some extent, I mean, as we saw in that documentary, those riders, they were in that uh, final group of eight or ten riders. Most of them were doing the sort of um, virtual tr- riding as much as they were doing outdoor riding. Mm. So there was some skill. I think it would be interesting if somebody who just came from an indoor riding background could adapt to being in a peloton on the road because well, there are some peloton skills. Well, remember the, need. <laughs> remember the Zwift indoor world champs? The Zwift world champs was won by a rower. Yes, that's right. Remember that. That's so right. that's an example of where you can be misled because you that just guy, had the power. that guy, that's just because then it becomes a power exercise for five minutes because mm. all you got to do is have a minimum to stay there, and then I mm. seem to recall that course involves the sort of last five minutes of climbing, and yes. now this is the guy who can go to eight watts a kilo. Yeah, he's not doing that on the bike. So then, in actual fact, you're very misled. So yeah. as long he as you do, I mean, he's done nothing in terms of cycling mm. as a professional yeah. on the road. Yeah, exactly. But he's clearly got massive lungs. Mm. Heart that works like a like a <laughs> hydraulic piston engine thing, and good enough legs to push 
mm. for that period of time. Yeah. But after four and a half hours, you're not going to find that guy near the front of a race. 100%. Also because of his size, you see. So you have to be smart about it. You can't be just based on numbers. And presumably, I didn't follow the Zwift Academy thing. Like They would have screened them initially based on their indoor bike yes, performances. Did, yeah. Yeah. And then they would have had to assess, at some point, personality. I mean, Boyer, who gave that contract... It was Boyer, right? No, it was in Phoenix. Yeah. That time it was Alps in Phoenix. Now mm. it's not the Phoenix anymore, right? It's, it's, it's Quick Step. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got quick confused step, between yeah. Jai Henley and Jay Vine. <laughs> um, Alperson's not, at that time, they're not going to offer a contract based on numbers you submit on Zwift. They're going to sure. do a bit more diligence than that. Yeah. And that diligence would be is does this guy have. Is this guy translating what we see on an indoor into mm. the into his road performances? And he's close Which I suppose that camp was what that was about because that exactly. was on the road stuff for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So it'll be, an effective, it'll be an effective way for people to find. Mm. The other way to do it is to just, I'm sure some teams have done this, just design bots that scour Strava. Yeah. I mean, you, you go say, okay, <laughs> we, know in, That's interesting. we know in Italy, France, and Spain, there's five areas each country that have got half a dozen climbs. Just let's f- follow who comes on these climbs, you know? Yeah. Oh, here's a new kid. He's 24 years old and he's got three out of the 10 comms in this area. Call him up. Yeah. See? Yeah. Not, yeah. And he'd probably be known on the local club scene, the semi-elites or something. Mm. But that mm. might be the other way to do it now. Yeah. It's yeah. a numbers game now, you see? It's a... Yeah. It's interesting because we know that in cycling there are obviously tactical considerations, um, but you're right. If, if you don't have the numbers, you, you, you're a non-starter. Mm. You can always learn the tactical considerations. Yeah, which and I'm some close. better than others, you know. Yeah, There's an argument to be made that Roglic doesn't have the tactical cycling yeah. nous because he was a later arrival to it, whereas yeah. guys like Bernal, Pogacar mm. had a longer learning period to learn mm. how to sit in the group, conserve mm. energy and so mm. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that I did uh, take out from the vault is that <laughs> I missed the classic days of Paul Sherwin and Phil Liggett commentating because I'll be honest, I found the commentating at this year's event quite abysmal. Mm. But um, it's, it's a funny thing that, you know, and it's just a complete aside, that when it comes to commentating, when you listen to the commentators in sport, it's such a subjective thing because I know people who will say they loved the, 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 the commentary team for the Vuelta and yet I find it almost put me off to, to the point where I wanted to switch off the sound. Mm. Um, so I'm always finding it quite interesting to look at commentating, and it, this, this is across all sports to some extent, um, that some sits very well with me and sometimes commentating, just I just want to switch off the sound, man, and just have the picture showing because it's so bad. And I found that at the Volta. That was my personal view in it. Yeah. I always wonder, I mean, I've done a little bit of commentary here in South Africa, and when mm. I say little, I mean little, little. Mm. Two oh, years. You're both and I, we've both done a bit of that. Two years. I remember doing it with you one year, actually, yes. way before <laughs> we were even, this, before this podcast was even a... That's right. <laughs> It's back in the distance. Mm. Um, and they, they never give you feedback, you know? No. That was the big thing. Like, there's no feedback. And I always wonder, mm. I listen to sometimes the GCN guys, and I'm saying, is anyone sitting down with Kirby, for instance, and saying, just dial it back two degrees, yeah. and you'll actually be very good? Because they're eloquent, mm. and he's excitable, mm. but they overdo it. Mm. Sometimes I think Colton Kirby must have perfected the art of, like, yes. cyclical breathing, because he doesn't stop for about five yes. minutes. And if, then, some, and if somebody just gets out the saddle, they thinks it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened. Yeah, and it's on too stage. it's too hyperbolic and <laughs> yes. so on. So like, I wonder if there's a yeah. criticism. To say like, actually, someone was saying, "Listen, here's your scorecard." Mm. And I thought you were used too many cliches, and you were a little bit hyperbolic and mm. too breathlessly orgasmic commentary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas it's absolutely al- true. The, the alternative is true for what we got on our local television station is that it wasn't excitable enough. Yeah. I didn't think they were necessarily well, engaged. Well, the Volta ones, yeah. Ant McCross and Hannah, yeah. Yeah, they, not, they don't... I find quite, Hannah just repeated whatever Ant McCrossan said. Yeah, in a different way. It's almost yeah. the, the, the one person will say X, Y, Z, and the other one will say A, B, C, but they're yeah. saying the same, they're agreeing. <laughs> it's unnecessary words. Unnecessary, yeah. So I wonder if there's like... Because I, I would have loved that if someone had come to me and said, mm. you know what, you're actually a bit too monotonous. Mm. Uh, here's three things you might consider doing. Mm. Uh, it would have been very useful for me. I don't know whether they do that. 
with these because you're right it's very subjective yeah, it's and very subjective absolutely people, i'm always very hesitant to criticize commentators having as you said you and i have both done a bit of commentating on various events over the years and uh, often think if i listen to myself how would i want to better myself and mm. you're right you're often doing it in isolation um i used to love matt keenan and uh, robbie McEwen. I when they, were yeah, doing, they were good they were fantastic mm. and I, I still loved i think sherwin and uh, and uh, and phil leggett were absolutely brilliant purely because you had a commentator and an expert you can't have two commentators. You want somebody who's the expert comment and somebody that's creating the hype and the vibe. And that's kind of lost. And I think it's a bit like, and I, this is my final word on this, if I look at most commentary around the world, golf, cricket, rugby to some extent, a lot of the time it's just ex, it's ex-players that are commentating. And I don't know whether ex-players are necessarily the best people to create excitement and vibe. I think they know the sport really well, mm. but do they really create the excitement and the vibe that you want in a sport? I find cricket commentating terrible to listen to. <laughs> it's overly technical. It's not exciting. I want to know how people feel or what I want to be a spectator out there. But a lot of the well, time, it's just this overly technical analysis paralysis that just drives me nuts. So yeah, I yeah, I, I can relate. Yeah, I I think Robbie McEwen was the best. Co-commentator, because that's a former yes. cyclist, but he had wit. He added good value. He had wit and insight, and he yes. brought, he delivered insight wittily and eloquently. Yes. So I thought he was really good. There were some really good ones in rugby. I mm. think some of the cricket ones are actually quite good as well. Mm. But some of them, you're right, they're just there Subjective. because they knew how to bat or bowl themselves. Yes. American football season's just begun, and I, I think they do that the other day. They do it really well. Because they'll have a former player in the booth, but then mm. they'll have a professional media guy anchoring the broadcast. Yeah. And the former players, I think it's so competitive that they only get really good guys. They mm. must screen them. That would be an interesting thing to see. It's like, what do they look for when, uh, mm. you know, Troy Aikman's, for instance, Tony Romo came on um, after yes, retiring. Yes, I was watching a, that the other night myself on ESPN. Yeah, yes. with the Dallas Cowboys. He, he was the quarterback, and within a season, he was in the booth. That's and right. he was And he was calling players 10 seconds before they happened. They were paying the Cardinals, weren't they? Uh, no, actually, that was another game. The, you would watch yes. the opening game. Eh? Kansas. Rams, uh, St. Louis Rams against um, yes. Detroit, the Bulls. I just watched it by complete the Bulls, yeah. utter luck and then ended up watching it for half an hour purely because I know nothing about American football. But second of all, for that reason, <laughs> yes, the level of commercialism, good, eh? the commentating mm. is absolutely superb. Although I do now. find the, the mentions of advertisers a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's over the top, but I mean, yeah, someone's got to pay those guys yeah, to commentate. Yeah, um, Yeah, they're really good. Eh? They're, they're, that's that's probably the gold standard for like technical expertise mm. and delivery. Interestingly, when World Rugby was here last week for the Sevens, we had a meeting and one of the items on the agenda was the t- television coverage and what we could do around World Cup and one of the suggestions made by someone was to actually create a, a more digestible product for the non-rugby fan. So the criticism being what you've just raised about cricket is very technical and inaccessible to someone not in rugby. I'm the other way around. I When I watch, for instance, the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon, they pitch their coverage to the non-running fan. Yeah. And it, it kills me. I get so annoyed and bored by it because they, they'll they'll say inane things like these men are running so fast if you went down to your local track and ran around there in 71 seconds they'd be going faster than you i mean it's like i'm I'm already watching this i know yes you see so i don't think so i don't think sport has actually found a way to deliver technical because i find the technical insights to be the hook not off-putting as other people presumably would say that's too technical i just want to well, then I'm thinking, well, what do you, what do you want to watch? <laughs> I would agree with you about rugby, to be honest. I agree that rugby is very difficult for the average person to, first of all, understand the rules, mm. because I don't think even the commentators understand that half Sometimes the Sometimes the refs, maybe, even. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> making it more would digestible, say. I, yeah. I agree. It, it yeah. opens up the sport to a wider population. Yeah. Yeah. So just a final thought. I know that you were there at the Rugby yeah. World Cup Sevens, um, and we're going to wrap up with this. But uh, interesting, because... It's not meant often that you see literally men's and women's competitions happening concurrently with each other. You'd have a men's game, then a women's game mixed up throughout the weekend. It was good crowd support. But it was lovely to see that sort of both you know sides kind of getting equal coverage in terms of the crowds that were there. Mm. Well, World Rugby is really committed to women's, the women's game. It is the fastest growing segment yeah. now by a lot. Hmm. Admittedly, offer I guess what you could call a lowish base, mm-hmm. but I mean the participation numbers, the viewership numbers, the commercial interest are all climbing massively. You know, the World mm-hmm. Cups now in New Zealand starts in October, mm-hmm. and it's going to be, you know, it's it's growing exponentially. The Who's previous, the favourite there? 
Eng- England, mm-hmm. probably the dominant team actually in team sports globally. I think they're twenty high twenties unbeaten wow. matches. <laughs> they lost the last World Cup final to New Zealand. Now they're playing in New Zealand, but it would be a major surprise if anyone beats them. They are okay. so far ahead of the rest of the world. Wow. Because they're professional, well developed, got professional players, good coaching system. It's just investment. You see, first basically they were the first movers. Okay. In the space, and when a sport is for want of a better word, immature, mm. if you move first and do basic things well, you get ahead quite quickly. And mm. so their conditioning is better and their tactical preparation is better, their skills are better. They are yeah, they're, is the women's they're a frightening sport, prospect for is it, anyone. Is it professional? It is in England. It's mm-hmm. becoming that way in other parts of the UK and Europe. France are semi-professional. A lot of those payers are players are paid professionally the problem is they lack matches and opportunities because there's no structured league whereas in england the league is structured and it's called the ap15s and it is now basically the the the, what do you want to call it almost like the 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 center of the rugby universe they've now got american players french players australia new zealand wanting to play there because it's the best week on it starts incidentally very soon the next season it's the best competition standard and that's why the English are so far ahead. In fact, I'd say the, the biggest threat to women's rugby is the competitive in, imbalance that will happen if other countries don't match that investment soon. You know, yeah, I did a paper. Over, overly dominant. Mm, mm. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna, you'll see it and you'll see it in the World Cup. I mean, England, France, New Zealand are well clear of fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth, which are the European teams. Australia quite well off the pace. South Africa nowhere in women's rugby relative to men, where we're the world champions. And I I remember doing a paper actually looking, this is basic, like just body mass and height of players, men's and women's. And broadly speaking, we can divide the international rugby world into like the tier two nations, you know, the, 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 sorry, the tier one nations, which are the established countries. So for men, it's, it's the six nations and the Southern hemisphere four, 10, 10 top countries. And then you get the developing countries, Fiji, Japan, Tonga, Samoa, um, Georgia, Romania, Italy, I suppose, are on the cusp there, you know. And I looked at the gap in just mass between the tier ones and twos. And on the men's side, it's getting smaller and smaller every World Cup. So it's, it's coming down, which is what you want. Mm. On the women's side, it's getting wider and wider. Mm. And so what's happening there is that your best two or three are moving further and further away from your worst five, six, and seven, mm. or whatever, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And that's a problem because if, you're, if you have a semifinal where the score is 54, six, mm-hmm. then you have a problem. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so they need to invest in that. But it is exciting for women's rugby. Yeah. And the women's sevens at the weekend was, I mean, the the best match of the tournament was the women's final. It was tremendous. Yeah. And the, yeah, it was, it was really very good. Yeah. And I know they were quite proud of the fact that, you know, the, the, the trophies are handed out at the end together. You know, the women play, then the men play. They have the one trophy ceremony for both. That's unique in team sport, as far mm. as I know. So, yeah, it was a successful, another successful World Cup. Yeah. So I think it was yeah. good, yeah. Fantastic crowd support as well. Mm, so, Ross, uh, I know you're heading off to um, Switzerland today. Yep. Um, and then yep. heading off for a ride through Portugal. What, what event is that? It's a tour that they do from the north to the south. Mm. I've got a mate who just relocated to Portugal a month or two back, and he said, listen, come over and do this ride. It's a five-day thing called the N2 Challenge. You couldn't help yourself. It's not a race it, it, by <laughs> any means. I mean, it's like it's one of those things where they load all your stuff up and they say, meet you at the next hotel, and off you go. And there's a yeah, they carry your your kits and so forth. So yeah, it's yeah. like a it's like a luxury tour, mm. basically. But it should be fun. I mean, a bit of climbing, six seven yeah. hours a day in the saddle with a bunch of people, be cool. Okay, well, good luck. Have, yes. I hope you enjoy yourself. You've had a bit of a busy last couple of weeks, mm. um, so you're going to enjoy the holiday. Yep. Right. So for those of you who've been listening to us, don't forget you can engage with us on our Twitter feed, Sports SciPod, of course. Let us know about your thoughts on commentators and sporting commentators. I'd love to hear what people think about what you think are the best commentators in sport and maybe what you think are the worst commentators in sport. Always interesting <laughs> to see what people feel about that and engage with us on our social media platform. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, from us, for now, it's goodbye. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 